snuggled up with our favorite book. And other times we're out on logging roads just taking a look. Thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on different birding topics. We are definitely not experts, and anything that we discuss that might be controversial, we want you to remember that there are our own opinions, and they might be different from yours. Man, we've been busy last couple days. Well, until today. Today it's raining sideways and pretty miserable outside. But yeah, but there's a slug on our window. I, seriously, I don't know how it got so high. It's getting it's, all squished up. It's literally... I didn't see it until it was like six feet up, and now it's Ugh. almost to the top of the sliding glass door. Ugh. You can see through it. Yeah, because it's, it's being backlit. Is okay. it a banana slug? Yeah, it's a banana slug, yeah. Ugh. It's pretty cool. The cats weren't interested until I picked them up to it. So. <laughs> well, Rosie couldn't see it, because it's too far. It was too high. He's not a very tall cat. <laughs> He's not six feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> but then we were in the Portland area working on a fence, and we got my mom a puppy the other day, which uh, I did post as our hooray for today. Yeah, yesterday? And yeah, yeah, yesterday, and um, so one of our listeners mentioned, like, did she mean to, did, like, did she want a puppy? Like, did you just spring a puppy on <laughs> her? Spring a puppy Did on she want to care for it? And yes, she did. She wanted the puppy, but she just wasn't ready to go out and do it all by herself. So we had to push her to get it. Wasn't much she, of a push. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> I just had to call the person. Yeah, basically, yeah. You just had to facilitate it, and it just happened. Yeah. Um, other than that, COVID is still a thing. Yeah, we're, the hotel's still closed. Um, I did, I got some more painting done, so we finished the entire second floor with the new color. <laughs> and, uh, so the, this last week, we've been working more on the white trim all the way around. So I'm, I only have about a quarter of the building left for the white trim, and then it'll be all the way done, but it's raining today, so that's not happening. We're kind of running out of projects, though. Yeah, I know, and mine's starting to watch a little bit more. A few minutes more Netflix every day, just to compensate for that, I guess. Well, um, our last episode was the Women in Step episode, mm-hmm. and our listenership that wins for that one, I guess. The winner. Uh, first place was Islington, England. I'm cool. assuming I'm saying that right. I think I think I've heard people say Islington before, so I think <laughs> I think that's proper. Was it just me because I keep saying that, and, and you're like, that must be true then. I've. I, people are saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I hear people saying it. Um, second place was a tie between Blackheath, England, uh, Victoria, BC, and Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Nice. So thank you all for tuning in and checking us out, and we're um, hoping you're enjoying the show. Yeah. And so for this week, um, we're drinking a beer like, like usual. Um, my beer I got from our neighbor. She... Uh, I don't know if she bought extra beer or if she was thinking of us or, or what, but she, she walked across the street uh, a couple days ago and said, hey, I got these for you. I don't know if you've ever tried them before, but it's a uh, peanut butter milk stout um, from Belching Beaver Brewery, which I don't remember if I've had this specific one before, but I know I had one that tasted pretty similar um, a few, uh, like seven or eight months back um, when we were up in Seaside at one of the bars. Where's the, the, that one the Reese's from? Guy, this, it's from California somewhere. Okay. Yeah, Oceanside, California. Oceanside, California. Yeah. So it's really good. It's uh, peanut butter milk stout. It tastes like peanut butter. It tastes like a Reese's Pieces, which which I don't know if anyone remembers. Uh, we I talked. Mean, we talked we about talk that. About we it? talked about it on that. Oh, okay. Like months back, 
Um, you just can't get away from those peanut butter milk stouts. I, I guess so, but it, it might be the same one. I don't know, but it's it's pretty good. It's really smooth. Um, doesn't it's not it's not super heavy. I mentioned on Instagram that it's it was a heavy beer to be drinking on a hot day, and it, it, I when I it's my first drink, I was like, oh, it's not really actually that heavy. <laughs> it's, it's not that bad. You're like it's so rich. <laughs> I, I, I just looking at it, peanut butter milk stout. You'd think super heavy, like <laughs> a beefy, like filling beer, but it's it's not that not that. Not what you'd expect out of that. Well, I guess we're having a PB&J beer day because what I'm drinking is called Raspberried at Sea, and it's by Pelican um, Brewery, which is just south of us a we, little we, bit. We have one that's south of us by two blocks. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's, then there's one down in Pacific City. And we don't typically go to Pelican a whole lot, um, but I picked this up at the grocery store the other day uh, because I know it's fruity and I like fruity beers. And it's, yeah, it's raspberry. It's like a raspberry lager, I guess, or Hefeweizen. Ale. Um, yeah, ale. But I'm just saying that's kind of what it tastes like. Yeah. But anyways, it's, yeah, it's really good. And it has pelicans on it. And the, actually the bottle is really cool because it has the haystack rock that's in Pacific City, Oregon with a couple pelicans over it. Hmm. Which I think. Do they, do they all have them or is it just this one? No, all of them have it, oh, okay. I think. I've never paid attention to their bottles. Well, now I'm wondering, because of the International uh, Beer Bottle Label Group, I'm wondering if anybody has ever submitted Pelican to it, because it has a Pelican on it. And if you guys don't know about that, it's... Um, I read about it years and years ago, like, before Facebook was a thing. There's this International Beer... I believe it's International Beer Bottle Label um, Club... That to get into the club, you had to mail, like, a can or a bottle of beer to this address in Alaska. And it was all based on this website, which I think it's just somebody's ploy to get free beer, which is genius. It's not a bad idea. But um, they have to have a, a bird on it, and you... It has to be identifiable bird. So it it's something that's not just, like, a an m-shaped thing and call it a goal it's yeah it's gotta be something that looks like an actual bird but you have to be the first person to submit that specific bottle to get in the club so it's not like all of us can just go get this pelican bottle and submit it and we're all in the club it's like whoever was the first one to do it and so it keeps it forces you to like be on the lookout for like new stuff um not that i ever sent anything in or anything but i just i get a kick that there's a club yeah (laughs) about this and they have a whole list on their website. I don't know how often it's updated, um, but it has who has sent in what beers and which beers. So, like, you can look on the list and be like, oh, that one's already been submitted, so I'm not going to do that one. I'll keep looking. Yeah. Yep. So that's fine. Who knows if it's up to date? I haven't looked at the website in years. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> it, it, it's probably all collapsed. There's a Facebook exist. page. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. So this uh, this last couple uh, last couple days actually we've received a few emails um, and some letters from from listeners, which has been super exciting to to get that sort of thing. Um, so Hannah wanted to read one of them. Yeah. So we yeah. got a, an email from Lane, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it a little bit. Lane said um, that they just wanted to write us both and say thank you for your wonderful podcast. I heard about. Um, it through Bird or Twitter and have enjoyed the episodes so much, especially Rio Grande Valley episodes and about the Tufted Puffins that we did a couple episodes ago. Our podcast style, intellect, relaxed nature, and great bird information are brightening 
their isolation experience. Um, they and their college friend, I guess, have a collection of favorite bird species tattoos going. And they can't wait to get another one until they see some new species. So we told Lane that uh, they need to come visit us in Oregon so they can get Tufted Puffin. Yeah. And then maybe get a Tufted Puffin tattoo because that would be really cool. And yeah. I would totally get one with them. Yeah, Tufted Puffins are pretty pretty spectacular. Yeah, so thank you so much, yeah. Lane, to, for writing to us. And, um, yeah, I hope you get some new lifers when everything is lifted and travel and back out, on. Get out and go look at stuff, yeah. Yeah, we also got an email from uh, Rod, who uh, just moved down to uh, Arizona. To Arizona, and he wants us to come down and bird with him in the desert. So as soon as this all clears up, we're gonna have to get down to the desert and get some get some desert uh, Arizona species. Get that trogon. Get get a trogon for sure. Yeah, and then lastly, Leslie um, is a very sweet person who. Uh, we, we know, we met her son, Logan, mm -hmm. who's a listener. I guess they're both listeners. Yeah. Uh, but Logan moved into our area recently and we actually bumped into him on the beach and he's like, oh my gosh, you're Hannah and Eric. And we're like, Hey, you, and, <laughs> and we now, we now know Logan. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> but he had stickers. Remember that? Yeah. He was yeah. He gave us little puffin stickers. Yeah. yeah. But his mom uh, Leslie, she sent us some puffin face masks, which yeah. is just so sweet. Yeah, so, so Hannah made some face masks with uh, shorebirds on them. Which is terrible. And one side with shorebirds and one side with egrets. And yeah. I'm not a seamstress, so... I, so I, I've been wearing those to all the city council meetings. My dad lost one. Did he lose the other one? <laughs> he lost the other one. Oh my one. gosh. But anyways, I have mine still. And I've been telling people, if you can identify the shorebirds on my mask, you're standing too close. Which they're they're all it's a group of uh, peeps and and uh, nobody and knows Pipers. what they are. Anyways. Nobody has any anyone I see doesn't have any idea. They're like I don't know those are birds, but um, but now now we have we have that mask that Hannah made and then these two masks that uh, Leslie made that have uh, have Atlantic puffins on them. So that's and they're like, super exciting. They're super professional too. Yeah, they're, they're like very way nice better masks. than mine. <laughs> yeah, they're and and they're easy to breathe in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and super cute. So thank you so much, well, Leslie. That was very nice of comparatively you. Comparatively easy to breathe in. Yeah. Like, for, for a mask. <laughs> so for this episode, uh, we're gonna, we want to talk about two different things. We had um, someone sent us a book to look through, which was a, pretty, a really interesting book. And then we wanted to talk about uh, logging roads and birding on logging roads. So two things that don't really combine. but They're, they're... very similar things. <laughs> very similar books and logging. But... Well, yeah, I guess when you put it that way, yeah. we'll just call this the paper episode. The, it's an episode all about paper. <laughs> all about paper. Beginning to end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's better than what I had. <laughs> so, Eric, did you know that turtle dove populations have declined by 93% since 1994? It's European turtle doves, right? It is. Oh, my gosh. Are there, are there other species of turtle doves? I don't know. Oh, sorry. Put you on the spot right now? Yeah. Oh, okay. You're welcome. Please pause while I Google. <laughs> Anyways, um, I did not know that the populations have dropped by 93%. That is insane. So that's one of the many things that this book had, which I thought was interesting. It is a European turtle dove. And European it's in the family Columbidae. And it's all over, all over those countries. Um, but anyways, anyways so the we di I digress. <laughs> yeah. I digress the podcast. I'm going to put you on the spot about something later. All right, right, <laughs> um, so the book that we have with us, I'm, I'm holding it like you can see it. Um, it's called the turtle dove's journey, a story of migration. And it is by Madeline, uh, Dunphy and illustrated by Marlo Garnsworthy. 
And Madeline is an educational consultant, and she specializes in writing and teaching about nature. And she currently has 10 other books in print, including The Peregrine's Journey, A Story of Migration, and that was illustrated by Kristen Kest, which also sounds fantastic, and I'd really like it because I'm sure peregrines, like, hunt mm-hmm. turtle doves, so it would be like... So it's a sister book, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just realized... The way I said something a second ago, I wasn't reading a script. I was just imitating a script. The, the way I, I said the 93%. I did not know that 93%. I was, I was just thinking back the way I said that. Sorry. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just thought I sounded funny. And then I was like, why did I sound so funny Eric, they know that? you're reading from a script. Come on. Why, why did I sound? I, I didn't know why I sounded so funny. It took me a few seconds. Here, I'll, I'll not read from the script. And illustrated, <laughs> but no. Okay. And so the book is illustrated by Marlo Garnsworthy, um, who is an Australian-American author, illustrator, editor, science communicator, and birder. And her published works include fiction and nonfiction, um, and this is part of the Web of Life Children's Book Company. So this is a children's book. It's for ages five to nine, um, and it uses really appropriate language for those ages and shares concepts that I would think are usually kind of above those ages, but because of the language that's being used in it, it's really understandable and really um, great for those ages as well as all ages. And the information is interesting and it's engaging for all ages, like I said. And the illustration is just so beautiful that I'd love to hang it on the, the pages on my wall. Like, okay. I'm curious if there's, like, some sort of artwork that um, I can purchase to go with it. Because, yeah, it's just, it's really pretty. You don't want really... to just, like, cut up the book and just no, hang each individual no. page on the wall? No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think that would be some weird artwork, though. Be like, well, this is the cover. It's I framed it, and then this is page two. <laughs> so just walk along and read it. Yeah, just just walk around the room, and you can you can read this book. Um, so it uh, it it tells the story of a um, a male turtle dove. Um, basically, the entire migration story is a turtle dove. So he flies from place to place as he goes south and encounters different uh, different challenges along the way. Um, going along the 4,000 miles of journey that it takes through the Sahara all the way down to, um, uh, to Senegal. So it was, I thought it was really interesting. It names a bunch of specific places, um, Bordeaux and the, um, the Costa Blanca in, uh, what's it called? The country there, Morocco, Morocco. and, uh, the Atlas mountains and a bunch of different, uh, places and specific challenges along the way, which I thought was really interesting. And it, it was uh, definitely definitely educational and definitely like a geography lesson too. Like, what's north of what? Well, okay. So to be honest, like neither of us have thought super deeply about like a book since we had to do book reports, and we got this book, and I was just I read through it, and I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to say about it, and looking at it, one of the things that really strikes me is that normally when you hear about like migration and birds and everything, they like start on the southern end of migration. And then work their way up, and then they have their babies, and it's all part of the life cycle and things like that, and then ends with their babies, like, fledging. Yeah, um, and the but, baby's fledging and flying away. But this one, she, they, um, they took it the opposite way. So, I mean, you, they don't have babies in this book, but it starts at the end of the breeding season, and it's working south. So it's, like, all of the things it sees on its southbound migration, which I found found really interesting. And it, I hadn't even, I honestly, until you said that right now, I hadn't even thought about that. But that, it's literally the exact opposite 
story that you normally hear. It's the other half of migration, the the going back to wintering grounds <laughs> section of migration. Stuff that you don't really think about because normally it's like, oh, they have their babies and everybody's happy and everything. But yeah. this is like, yeah, what happens after that? Yeah, it, it starts off after the babies have left. Yeah, <laughs> and then they meet up with the babies again at their their wintering grounds. Yeah. Um, but like Eric said, they go over some very beautiful places. Uh, the fountains in Casablanca, they get blown down the Atlas Mountains and avoid sandstorms. And um, it has all these really interesting locations, which some are urban and some are rural or, you know, wilderness locations. Mm -hmm. And I think the author and the illustrator have done a really good job of showing the diversity of what these species will see because it starts off in the gardens of Suffolk, uh, England. So urban. Yeah, so highly urban. And then it ends up, you know, in the Sahara and this like super rugged climate. And so you really see how adaptable these birds are and how they, they experience all these different things. And um, it's all based on an actual turtle dove that was tracked by the Royal Society of the, for the Protection of Birds. Um, so you know that this is all factual information because when I started reading through it, I was like, well, how do I know any of this is factual? And so I, in the back, they talk about, um, the Royal Society for the Birds of Protection or Protection of Birds and how, um, they've been tracking these species and, you know, all the, the challenges these species face. So it's cool to see a children's book that did such a great job of being factual and being, um, giving good information. Yeah, so I, that was, so that, that, like you mentioned at the end, that was like, honestly, my fa- my favorite part. And I think that's the part that if, like, a parent were reading it to their kids, like, they, you you would read it through and you, you might learn something like, I, something we talked about, like Peregrine Falcons. I didn't even realize Peregrine Falcons are everywhere. And that was and, the funny <laughs> thing is that we were talking about the review and I said, like, you know, interesting information for all ages. And I was just kind of like floating that idea and Eric was like well I don't know and I was like well while you were reading it you asked me about peregrine falcons because <laughs> you saw it in the book so and then, then, then I had to go just double check Merlin and be like oh yeah they are they so, are everywhere they're, so not, it, they're not just uh in the Americas yeah so it is interesting <laughs> information for for advanced birders beginner birders non-birders yeah well and even somebody that if you're like we were talking about even if you are a professional ornithologist or a lifelong like heavy chasing birder like that that last page in it that has a bunch of random information about like the the ninety three per, the population has dropped by ninety three percent since nineteen ninety and like that that sort of information is like oh that's that's interesting I I didn't I didn't know that I've been we've been studying birds for like ten twelve years now so it's like well it's some new information and we're we're in our thirties and been studying birds since since college and yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and um, so I was a park ranger. Uh, Eric and I have both been park rangers. And I did interpretation, so educational things. And I did a lot of mommy and me events at the park where I would have families come and we'd read a story and then we'd go for a walk or, you know, do educational things like that. Just like really simple educational things to get people into the park. Um, and so I read a bunch of children's books and Ton. we would go to, we would go to the library like on like twice a week Yeah. to go see what they have in the children's sections. So I mean, I could find something. Yeah. That was like relatable and interesting. And this book is a little bit older than the ones that I had gauged because I, mm-hmm. I usually worked with like really young kids. Um, 
but none of them had like the quality of stories and like so we read through a bunch of them in the library but none of them really had the quality of story and really described a migration journey in such a way that's so interesting and easy for um, children and people who don't have a firm grasp of how migration works because not everybody's a birder so not everybody really understands migration yeah. but I feel like this um, really makes it easy, easy and manageable for people to understand and I really like that the author and, and illustrator put information on each page that's not necessarily related to the dove but is specific to um, the places it visits and the things it sees along its journey like information about how long the atlas mountains are or yeah. you know that there's camels in certain places where it see that it goes to you know like i don't know where camels are like i know they're in africa are they in africa yeah, there's species. There's also species in Asia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um... They're, they're, they're kind of all over the place over yeah. there. Why did Lots I ask of, if they were in Africa? Like, there's part of the book. Part of the book and I read it. it's in Africa. <laughs> yeah. And you read it, yeah. Scratch that. <laughs> um, but anyways, it, it has, like, little minute details in it that really add a whole lot to the story. And the map at the beginning, um, it... It has all of the places plotted out that are in each page. So, like, it, the first one says Suffolk, England, and it's pages four to five, London, England, pages six to seven, and they're plotted out on the map. So you can really see how um, the migration works. It's not just, like, when you, you know, go to Cornell. Like, of course, I love Cornell and their migration maps and mm -hmm. everything, but it's just, like, this big arc of, like, where it goes. But this one, it's, like, it goes from here to there to the next place to the next place. Yeah. And you can see it stops along the way. And then the author and the illustrator give a little bit more information about those places and what that bird does. And so it just makes it more um, relatable yeah. and interesting. Yeah. So, so this book will be published. It'll be out for, for everyone to buy. Snatch up a copy May 9th. Um, so coming up in less than a month, a couple, couple weeks from now. Um, just in time for uh, World Migration Bird Day. B World, <laughs> World Bird Migratory Day. World, World Migratory Bird uh, Day. Oh you know my what? Gosh. Whatever. I don't. I don't even know how to talk. I've there's this thing called talking that I'm just learning how to start. So make sure to pick yeah. up a coffee. Copy. Wow. <laughs> make sure to pick up a coffee. It's too. contagious. Make sure to pick up a copy of this beautiful <laughs> and interesting and fascinating book for your favorite five to nine year old. Um, or anyone interested in birds and their stories. I really enjoyed it, and we'll put it in the show notes. And uh, yeah, see that. Yeah, and so we'll we'll take this now. Now we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the book, to the beginning of paper, beginning of paper, which back, formed the book, which formed the book. Yeah, so back logging, so logging roads. They. What's your initial impression of logging when somebody's like logging? Logging. I think of that show X Men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on History Channel. If you've never watched it, um, the the first season takes place in my family's hometown, Vernonia. Which is like 45 minutes from here. Yeah, not that far from here. Um, and it's, uh, my, my dad knows half the people in the first season. Uh, it's, like, it's logging. Like, that's what I think of about logging. <laughs> a, bun a bunch of yahoos in the forest with chainsaws. I think about, like, a um, contractor, like, surveyor, like, standing in the middle of the forest and, like, a nice press shirt, like, some Carhartt jeans, and then like a um, like one of those vests, the reflective vest and a hard hat with a clipboard. <laughs> that's when I think of logging. That's what you think of logging. Yeah. That's how you log. Well, that's what I think of like surveying. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
in order to do logging, you have to have roads to get out, to get out to these places. They're mm-hmm. middle of nowhere, like, you, and logging roads are generally pretty unimproved roads. And around the whole country, there's over 400,000 miles worth of Jeez. forest roads that are logging roads. Ro- roads that are used for logging. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a ton. That's a lot of roads. And then Oregon has the highest concentration of logging roads throughout the whole country. So there's over 75,000 miles. That's like, what, a fifth of all the logging roads are in Oregon? Yeah. And, and we're a pretty small, I mean, moderately mo- sized state. But we're mostly forest. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of forest here. And then California is number two, but they're 26,000 miles less than Oregon. So they're like, oh, okay, so like two-thirds the size. Yeah, so they, they have like, they have uh, 40, 49,000 and wow. we have 75,000. Jeez. So, and they're number two for number of miles of logging roads. So there's, there's a lot of logging roads in Oregon. So if you've ever driven a gravel road in Oregon, you're, you're probably on a logging road. <laughs> That's, there's just so many of them. But um, they are, they're all over the place. They're generally easy to find, but they're also generally hard to navigate because there's, <laughs> there's no, there's, they're a maze. They're not, there's no signs. Yeah. Logging roads don't have signs. Not all logging roads can be driven on. Yeah. Some of them are um, restricted. They have a, they'll have a gate over them. They're only allowed during certain seasons. They're only allowed for um, professionals to be using. So logging trucks or people that are, that have a key that are specifically mm-hmm. going out to go survey. Um, so there, there's a lot of random restrictions and stuff that uh, logging roads have. But generally, you can go out on a logging road anytime you want, generally. So I did, I have spent a handful of hours on logging roads. Mm-hmm. I had a job for, well, you know all this. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> I know. The listeners might know it too. Oh, they don't know. Okay. They, I don't know. <laughs> well, anyways. Um, <laughs> I had a surveying job out, out of college, um, or when I was just out of college, to survey for northern spotted owls on in um, on the north coast of Oregon. Up in, in Clatsop National Forest? Well, and... Or what, it was Tillamook National well, Forest. Well, and up in Clatsop, too. Yeah. Um, but it was for a contractor doing it for the state to see if there were northern spotted owls, which is an endangered species, um, in certain logging habitats. Because they wanted to log it, but they want they couldn't log it if there were spotted owls. And, and they had to do their due diligence and try to find it. Yeah. And so we would go up on the logging roads, like, leave at 10 o'clock at night, get up onto the top of the logging road, you know, midnight or whatever. And then go to specific survey points, play the spotted owl call for, like, 10 minutes, and then turn it off and listen to hear if you hear any responses. So that was probably one of the most terrifying jobs that I've ever had. <laughs> like, I only worked it for, like, a handful of days because it scared the crap out of me and because it gave me migraines. <laughs> well, it's, so it's, you're literally in the middle middle of nowhere. You, you drive up a logging road a couple miles. So you're, you went to the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. to go further into the middle of nowhere. And then you're, you're out there. There's no, no lights, no nothing. And sometimes you come upon somebody driving randomly. It's like, well, what the heck? But, and we, we found just, like, random things. Like, I found a TV that had been shot out. Like, a bunch of kids got shotguns and, like, just shot out a TV and yeah. left it. And there's a campfire. Um, so, yeah, there's some weird things on logging roads. And that's... I've always been really hesitant and not wanting to go on a logging road because of these things. But... Um, the reason we're doing this for this episode is because yeah. we were like talking about roads with my mom and, and we literally just went out 
on one that's close to us. Well, well, that's how we found out about it. It's because my we were talking to my mom about um, that trail, I guess, or that that totally van mainland. Well, she just brought it up. She's yeah. like pulled it out and she's like oh well you could go hiking up the tolavana mainline and we're like what is that <laughs> and she's like oh well you just go here and here actually she said we could drive she's like a lot of people just drive out to the quarry <laughs> and we're like what <laughs> like i've been on every road in this town it's not there's, a big town there's no quarry here yeah so um we decided to investigate there are no websites no information about the site uh mm. I mean, there's like one random um, blog post that somebody did on alltrails.com, I think, about it. But there was no information. So we were like, well, let's be the dumb people that go out and investigate it. Oh, why not? So that's how we got into logging roads for this episode. But like Eric said, you know, there's just a ton of logging roads in Oregon and around the country that um, are interesting places to go look. And many of them you can go on. And there are also some that you can't go. Yeah, so let's. I, I feel like we need to address some of the controversy about. Yeah, so logging roads. <laughs> there's always yeah, there's controversy around them as well, and around clear cuts. The the bad news of clear cuts, good news. There's 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 lots of controversy there because you're basically the whole reason for the road to exist is to go out there and basically destroy habitat. That's that's kind of the reason that they exist. I mean secondary reason i guess primary to gather up all that wood but in order to gather the wood you have to cut stuff down so it's you're, you're going out to destroy habitat and so historically these roads and the um methods that they did it were very unsustainable and very destructive mm -hmm. they would build a road wherever was convenient which a lot of times meant going along a stream bed because it's flattish and so they destroy all the salmon habitat. Yeah. Or they would cross road, cross um, creeks, mm -hmm. and in order to cross the creek, they would literally just drop a twelve inch culvert down and just drive over it. Well, and so, so then that would it would just muddy up the thing. Yeah. All, all it is is just a lot of the water to go through. But they didn't care about the quality of the water passing by. Mm -hmm. So you just drop a single culvert down there and just drive over it. But a lot of things were done like in very bad methods historically there's now Oregon and many other states have very strict rules about the way these are to be um, bu initially built and then maintained. And we're not here to say that those are good or bad no, no. or we're not passing judgment on the way that states manage it. Companies manage it. We're just saying that these things exist and we went on a logging route. <laughs> yes. They, they, they are things that exist. There are regulations I don't know if they're good enough. I don't know if they're. I don't know. If somebody's in somebody's pocket. Yeah, we're we're not we're not experts about that. We we just uh, we know what we know, and I feel I feel okay-ish, I guess, with the way that Oregon manages. Um, so they do have a couple generally. restrictions um, that govern private timber harvest, and um, I mean my limited knowledge of logging from getting a degree in this sort of thing. Um, <laughs> Is, you have a degree I, in it, but not an Well, it's in natural resource management. <laughs> you had a, you had a lot, lot of forestry classes, though. Yeah. It was in the Department of Forestry. It was. Um, but a lot of the things that the state of Oregon, and every state's going to be different how they manage it, but uh, the state of Oregon, since we have so many logging roads, our colleges focus on logging. It's probably one of the... It was like, the for, for years, it was the number one um, resource that we 
We did. Well, that, I don't technology know is more of what we do now. But, but are we the number one logging producer? I think I think for for or a number of years that we were the number number one timber producer in the country. Well, anyways, so we I don't ha- think so anymore. But <laughs> we have things like limiting clear cuts. Um, so Oregon limits clear cuts to 120 acres. Of course, you know we don't like clear cuts because they're ugly, but you know at least they have a limit on them. And like to be honest about clear cuts, like they suck. Like that's. We could just say straight up they suck, but one positive thing we were talking about before this, or semi-positive, is um, that there's uh, between 40 and 90 years, depending on how how, uh, how much uh, you want to be able to harvest when you harvest, between 40 and 90 years before a Douglas fir stand is harvestable again. And that's one of our major crops here. Yeah, that's, that's the, the number one. There's 75% or something. But um, So at 40 years, they get 75% of the maximum potential so that's 40 years that nobody touches that land essentially so i mean, I, mean that, I guess that's go, okay they'll go through and thin they'll, they'll thin brush and, and stuff yeah yeah and do some things to the habitat so it's um you know to optimize timber growth as well as uh, meat compliance yeah um but yeah so 40 to 90 years before 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 it's harvested again so i mean clear cuts yeah they suck they're they're ugly they suck they're de- bad for habitat because you destroy everything but there's, I guess, that one thing, I guess. <laughs> so another thing that Oregon um, requires is that stream buffers are protected for water quality and fish habitat. Um, so that's uh, that's good, too. Yeah. But it's just, you know, this the website that we're looking at, we're, it's not getting into the nitty-gritty. It's just like, it requires that stream buffers are left. It's not like how long, you know, how wide. Yeah. Well, or... it, it, this, this website, it's the Oregon Forest Resources Institute. It, it says... Like it doesn't give it doesn't give us more resources where we can find more, but it does say that the width of that buffer depends on the total width of the stream. So, a thinner stream would require a smaller yeah buffer. blah blah blah. So it's it it does say a little bit, but it's I think it's just for like random yahoos like us to feel good about Oregon. I, I don't guess. appreciate you calling me a yahoo. <laughs> Yahoo's my my word of the day. Right? Apparently, yeah. Um, it also requires that they leave trees and down logs. Um, so like two live trees or snags or two large logs on the ground per acre for wildlife habitat. Yeah. Which that doesn't sound like very much, but I mean, it's, they're, they're harvesting. So I mean, yeah, it's something, I guess. And they require that the construction or I'm sorry, the logging crews have to, um, plan out the location, provide construction and maintenance use and drainage and all that of the forest roads. So they are, uh, going to be optimally built and of course you know they're going to need to be checked to make sure it's all good yeah so it's some something like what, what i was talking about earlier like they're not just dropping a culvert in the middle of a stream and driving over it yeah. they're they're doing something in order to mitigate all that extra sediment going into the stream they're they're also required to um certain roads certain existing roads to not drive them during certain times of the year so the the wet weather when it's when it's pouring down rain and they have extra runoff they're not allowed to drive on certain existing roads just to try to mitigate any of that extra stuff flushing into the stream and filling it out. And um, they also require that the areas harvested are planted within two years after harvest. Um, and then after six years, um, when the trees are a little bit bigger, they have to go through and and cut out the grass and brush and well they're, and they're not required out. they're not required to cut out the grass and brush they're just required that those trees within six years are out competing the grass and brush so yeah. if that is that they're cutting it then yeah 
or if it's that they planted large enough seedlings in the first place to have grown that large to be out competing. It's, I guess it's either way. Yeah. So as long as they're um, do, doing their due diligence to make sure that what they're planting is going to mimic what they cut down, basically, is what they're what they're what they're kind of trying to get at. So Oregon has a lot of regulations. I'm I know pretty much every other state around the country has regulations associated with like trying to make harvesting timber more sustainable. And all of this kind of goes into the landscape that you see when you go out on a logging road. So the nearest logging road to us that's like walking distance away is um there there's a bunch of them there they all have I'm sure they all have names and stuff but um they go through a, a number of different types of habitat as you as you're wandering through it the um the closest one i'm thinking of is right here at uh from ecola forest reserve okay the, the back end of ecola forest reserve you can walk out there i don't and, know what you're getting at well i'm, I'm just saying see so you go from ecola forest reserve okay it's nice and thick forested protected protected uh, piece of property yeah then you'll, you'll move off into a clear cut and then you'll be back, back in into forest. back in the forest into clear cut into forest so it, you because you're crossing over multiple things because they're restricted on the size of the clear cuts mm-hmm. you have lots of habitat edges which isn't necessarily great for habitat to have a lot of habitat edge but if you're going birding you get a lot of diversity with birding when you're when you're at a habitat edge okay so that was a long roundabout way to go nowhere <laughs> <laughs> that was a long conversation for so nothing. that's a lot about logging roads. anyways so anyways so for our adventure we went on the logging road we talked about uh, Tolvana Mainline with my mom, and we were like, okay, let's just go. Let's just do this. And so we got up to the gate, parked the car, saw that you were... <laughs> the, they had to have a permit. You had to have a permit. Um, it's part of the Lewis and Clark something or other. Um, it's a it's a private um, timber company that, uh, that leases land from the state or the county for the... To, to, for usage of the, to be able to harvest. Yeah. And so they require that you have a permit, which like was no problem at all. You just go to the website and I did it on, we stood there next to the gate. I did it on my phone, um, completed the permit and then, um, started hiking, but we did have some stuff about permitting on public or on uh, private property. Yeah. That Eric wanted to talk about a little bit because, I guess, I guess um, it is, it is kind of bizarre that like, well, I guess it's not super bizarre, but it's like, I don't think when you go up a trail, like you need a permit or anything, even when it's like a, um, like a park, like mm-hmm. a private park, sometimes you'll pay a fee, but yeah. there's never anything that you really need to fill out with your name and your address and your phone number and all that. Um, which if you do go on some like backcountry trails, like they'll ask you to do that. So if they, if so you if never they, return, yeah, then the car's still there afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I think that's interesting, and we kind of looked up why that it requires that. Yeah, so I, actually, so the reason I looked up why is what had more to do with something that you said while we were out there. So um, Hannah took a, a class. A risk management class. A risk class. management class when she was getting her master's, and part of it, she, like this, like, quote, or maybe it's a um, paraphrase, like, stuck out in her, in her head, and she had to mention it while we were out there, that... Um, companies have to, have to allow recreation because if you allow recreation, then there are a set of rules that you, that then protect you from, from a lawsuit. If you allow recreation, if you restrict regulate recreation, 
then you have to, it's the impetus is on you to prove that you had done everything in your power to stop people from getting onto your land, fences, whatever. And so now it's your fault if they got hurt. But if you allow recreation and those people are partaking in the recreation, then it's on them that they chose this recreation to then hurt them, to hurt themselves doing. So unless it's gross negligence. Unless it's gross negligence. So it was kind of, that was kind of the impetus for me to look, to look up something about like, why do they even do this? Is it, is this actually true? Is that, is that something that's actually the case? And I found that yes, it is the case. So back in 1965, um, the U.S. passed the Model Act, and it basically is protections for landowners that allow um, public access for recreation on their land free of charge. So if they don't charge anything for it, and they say, yeah, you can go ahead and go hiking on my property. And you, like, slip on a rock and break your leg. Yeah. Then, then it's, it's not on them. It's not on the property owner's fault because they didn't charge you, and they allow everyone on. Basically, everyone. They are allowed, um, there's a few hand, handful of lawsuits that came up, but basically they can restrict it to a certain extent. So holiday, they can say, they can say like general things like you can't be out here on holidays or you can't be out here after dark. Like th those are restrictions that are accepted, um, that still allow it to be public access. But the one thing is like, if you say, oh, well, my buddy comes over here once, once a month, then and he's the only one allowed, then that's not public access. That's your buddy. If he gets hurt, now it's on you. You're the landowner. But generally, if you if if these if these government agencies or private entities are allowing free public access, if they permit it, then they're they're free of blame. They don't they're they're protected under under this act, basically. But so, also, we're not lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> it was just something I was I was reading, and it was ba based on what Hannah had said about the what she saw in risk management. So I I thought that was really fascinating that. All, all they have to do is allow public access, and now if we break our leg, then it's on us because we broke our leg. They didn't. They didn't break our leg. We broke it. So. So yeah, more about that law than you ever wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, if, if you ever want to look it up, it's, it we was were, interesting. We were talking about like why do these private companies allow you on their land or on the land that they're leasing? Mm -hmm. Like, what would be the benefit to them? And I was thinking like, well, it could be you know good PR, like a lot of people seeing it, logging as a negative thing, and so then they talk they allow you to recreate on it so you're like well i guess they can't be all bad if they allow you to recreate on it but then yeah. i also thought of that that risk management thing that i was like well maybe they just kind of have to because it's easier to do it than to not do it yeah i i it's probably more that but but i, I still thought it was know. fascinating Who we knows? don't know their motivation we, we didn't we didn't go talk to the ceo of uh, lewis and clark logging company or or anything like that so yeah. who knows so um <laughs> we get on the trail it is like a straight up hike to the top of a mountain we go past the the water feature or the water tank for our town yeah one, one of the main storage tanks our, our million gallon tank for town uh, but it was a really nice trail it was like packed gravel because mm -hmm. people must drive it pretty frequently yeah but up to top of this hill and we saw um anna's hummingbirds up the way there was a golden crown sparrow i believe on the hike up, mm -hmm. as well as um, Pacific Wren's calling, other sparrows calling, a ton of the, orange crowns. So or orange crowns. That was I posted something about this um, this morning, maybe or yesterday. I was I was talking to somebody on Facebook about how this year I have seen so many orange crowns, 
like warblers, almost, orange, or, orange crown warblers. warblers, yeah, or so many orange crown warblers. Like it is insane. They're calling nonstop. They're, everywhere I look, there I see another little olive green bird. Like there it goes. So it's, I, I think it's crazy. I don't know if I've ever seen this many orange crown warblers like all together at once. Like they were all they, up in the trees. They're, they're, yeah, on, on that hike, they were all over the place. Last night, I, I went on a walk and they were everywhere. Orange crown warblers like crazy. <laughs> It's, it's a crazy year. So, we didn't really have a good idea of, like, which trails we were going to go, but then I noticed that the trail, if we took the main trail, because there's a lot of spurs off of it, that we'd end up there's around... 75,000 miles worth of spurs. Yeah. You know, that we'd end up around to our friend's house and be able to walk back to the car real quick without having to, like, backtrack at all. So, we were like, okay, we'll go on that route and yeah, took no us no backtracking. Up, yeah. Bonus. <laughs> took us up to the top of the hill, had a beautiful ocean view, lots of... Um, that was kind of in the clear cut section or the, I guess the trees were growing up, but they were like, mm-hmm. they were maybe 15, 20 years old. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So they're pretty they're like 10 or 15 feet tall. Yeah. Pretty young still. Um, and then there was this Rufus hummingbird that was like zipping past oh Eric. Gosh. Like I, it was trying to attack him. I, so I, I was, I've, I've changed the way I carry my recorder now, which I, I really like it, but I wasn't prepared to pull it out. <laughs> And so I, I didn't get a, I, it was like super loud. It was like dive bombing right next to us. And I was so disappointed that I missed getting that recording of the, of the, um, the Rufus hummingbird. Cause it was so loud and super close, but it was, it was really cool and dive, dive bombing like crazy. And th- that's when I looked up and saw that Pacific loon flying over. Oh yeah. And it, it was like, like we're, I mean, at, at this point we're only like two miles away from the ocean. So we're not, we're not that far away from the ocean. We're basically at the ocean, yeah. but it's just just fl- flying straight over, super high up, probably almost a mile straight up in the air. And just flying by. And we went down a little further, and there was a ravine to our left side. And we saw a guy with a kid. <laughs> and, like, he, the guy had, like, a pickaxe or something like that. But he, and he was tying a tether to his kid's wrist so the kid didn't drop the pickaxe. It was a little sh- tiny thing. Yeah, but, like, we were, like, just walking down the trail. I didn't expect to see anybody up this trail because, like, I'd never heard of it. And, you know, I've been here for years. And I posted online, does anybody know about this trail? And nobody knew about it. So it's like, how could anybody know about it? So Apparently lots of people know about it because there was a car already there and then there's this guy. Yeah, and so we, like kind of approached him and i don't know what he was doing but like he started down the ravine and then the kid was like following behind him he was like a three or four year old kid like i wasn't sure if we should have called somebody but i was like i'm sure it's fine they're probably like truffle hunting or something oh i'm sure i'm sure they're probably going down either either going down to the creek to go rock hound or truffles or maybe they're going down to go find berries or something. Maybe. Who knows? So we kept walking along. We're rubber beans. And yeah. And uh, there was a couple ruby crown kinglets that crossed in front of us. And so we were mm-hmm. watching them because we were like, oh, they're being rather quiet for ruby crown kinglets. Um, but then just after that, there was uh, a bird that looked like a ruby crown and wasn't quite acting like one. It was one. way slower. Yeah. It ended <laughs> it was up being much less. Energetic. Ended up being a Hutton's Vireo, which is, um, for us, a pretty good bird. Which, yeah. even though they're in the area, like, that was only our second time seeing one. Yeah, I, I think, I think I have a couple, a couple more than, I think we have a couple more than just two sightings. But it's, it's pretty low. Like, generally, ruby crown kinglets are pretty much everywhere. And then Hutton's Vireos, not so much. But I, that was another one. I almost got the recording, but not quite. But I got a couple pictures of it. So, that was exciting. So we went down more trails and up more trails and ended up at the quarry. 
Which... This, this famous quarry everyone's telling us about. <laughs> my parents have a thing about quarries. <laughs> because, like, my dad used to think he was a gangster. He had, like, this old school... He has this... I mean, he still has it. It's a 1946 Ford. Uh, With suicide doors. And yeah, and he... It's classic. He, he, in college, he had, like, a Tommy gun. And he would, like, take it to the quarry and, like, shoot it. Because he was cool. Yeah. So... They what, think what, about else, what else do you do when you have a Tommy gun and a forty six Ford well, I just with don't, suicide doors? I just don't know that people go to quarries. You, you, you get a fedora and you go to the quarry. I feel like people have quarry parties. <laughs> <laughs> like they live out in rural areas. Like, let's go to the quarry and drink. I don't know. They probably do. I, mean, I grew not? up in an urban place. We didn't do that. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I got to the quarry. Nothing really there. We. I don't know why. I was just like convinced we were going to see a grouse in there. I think we heard a noise. I was like, that has to be a grouse. And I was like, we're going to go around the corner and see a grouse. But we didn't. A grouse? Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping to see a mountain quail. Well, yeah. That's actually what we were <laughs> looking for up there. <laughs> yeah. I So that and uh, Evening Grouse Peak we were still looking for up there. Yeah. Because, you know. Uh, we're never going to see that. What, what is it? It's Nemesis. That's it. We're never, we're never going to see him. So. But as soon as we finally see it, it's going to be just like Bobolink. Um, two years ago, mm-hmm. when we finally saw our first bubble link, all of a sudden we saw like nine more sightings within like two months. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, they're everywhere as soon as you finally see it. So once those floodgates are open, I guess <laughs> we'll finally just jump on it. But, um, we met another guy on the trail just a, just a few minutes after that. Well, we were standing there listening to a band of Stellar's Jays just like going, going nuts off. So we were trying to figure out if there was an owl or what was going on. And there were also a lot of warblers that Eric saw a black-throated gray that he was convinced yep. was going to be a black and white. Oh, I, I keep, every time I see a black-throated gray, my first thought is black and white. <laughs> it's not black-throated gray. I'm always thinking black and white. So it's, it was way up high on the top of the trees. So not, not great black and white already. Hanging but, out with the chickadees. <laughs> but uh, it was just way up there and... I saw it for like just a split second and then Hannah had to remind me that we have black-throated grays here and that and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but anyways, we <laughs> Never ran mind. to that guy. Yeah, then, then, we, then this guy comes down the trail and he's, he was, he was kind of just like, just like a local, just coming, coming down. He, he told us he was going rock hounding down at the creek. Uh, he said that the spot that we just, the, one of the offshoots that we just passed is really good for rock hounding. So he, he was going down to, um, down to the creek to go do that. But he was like... <laughs> he Go ahead. Yeah, he had to tell us this whole story about... He's, it started off um, telling us rock hounding is as good, but you got to be careful out here because there's footprints out here. And he was talking about bear footprints. He kind of Well, he said it was to. like 17 inches. Se- 17 inches. I saw, one that, I saw one that was 22 inches. And it's like, that's not black bear size. That's like grizzly bear. Like, yeah. we, we don't have grizzlies here. So this guy, it's it's kind of like when you see somebody that's, that's kind of afraid of snakes, all of a sudden that snake is six inches in diameter and 19 feet long. But, like, when we were talking about it, he was like, and then I was down at the creek and a rock hit me square in the back. Square in the and back. And then the rocks were, like, pelting all around me. And he was, like, talking about a black bear. And I was like, well, I've never, have you ever heard of somebody getting hit by a rock from a black bear? It's. He he's, he went to a Bigfoot. That's what he was talking about then. I know, but he just like switched and like there was no transition. Yeah, he was, it went like, from talking black about bear, black, black bear twenty two foot feet, twenty two inch, 20, 22 inch feet to getting hit with rocks thrown by Bigfoot. If so, I had had know. Bigfoot attack me, I wouldn't be out in the forest by myself. No. Yeah, he's just out there walking all by himself. Yeah, I don't know. So you you run into the some, people you meet. You run into some people on trails. It was 
it was it was an interesting experience. He uh, he he went down to go see if he could find Bigfoot again. I guess or he was petrified rock wood rockhounds. Like yeah. So lots next of, time, lots of cool stuff. We're going down that trail. For yeah. <laughs> to go find some some petrified wood next time. Yeah, definitely. for sure. We're we're not going up the hill. We're gonna go down the hill down to the down to the creek. I know. I we should have just done that. We, we should have just turned around when he said it. But Ugh. well, I, I didn't want to go with him. I didn't want to go walk with him and yeah. have him throw rocks at us and say it was Bigfoot. <laughs> Did you see Bigfoot? <laughs> Did you see him? He threw oh, that rock. He just ran into the trees. <laughs> he, he's he's behind that. Don't go over that way. He's over there. <laughs> so we just kept on walking along, and then we finally got to a recent clear cut section, and we could hear rent it. Like, all the way across. Like, it wasn't 120 acres. I mean, it was maybe half that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there was rent it calling. There was song sparrows. Um, white white crown sparrows. We had lots lots and lots of jays. Like, still. And, and they're everywhere. pretty much everything was the habitat edges, except for the um, the towhees. Mm-hmm. They were hopping around, like, in the, the tree stumps. And, and the Pacific runs. The Pacific yeah. runs really like to have the dense... Uh, like dense over undergrowth and something to hide in. So clear cuts and habitat edges that they don't really hang out there. There. So we had lots of Pacific runs too. Lots, lots of, I don't think I saw a single one still. No, but you were looking lot. for them. I was looking for them hard, but I, I got a couple of recordings, but nothing, no visuals. Um, and then, uh, yeah. So we ended up hiking another mile or so and ending up at our, just right outside right, of our friend's house. Yeah. Where we ran into another person yeah. coming up the trail that had to ask us about, uh, about the camera, and then he, he was asking us about... Uh, oh, bobcats, that's what he was saying. Mm-hmm. He said that he's seen a lot of bobcats out there on that trail. Bob, bobcats and cougar. Which, that would have been cool to see either one of those. Seriously. But uh, I guess we went the wrong time of day. Yeah. We need, we need to go earlier next time. But, you know, the thing that I liked about going... So that was really our second time hiking on a logging road. Um, the thing that I really liked about it was... That there wasn't a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was just super natural, even though it's not necessarily because it's, of clear you're, cuts. You're out in nature though, plantation it's, style, and yeah, and there there's no there's no human structures. Is yeah, the, is the I think that's kind of what you're getting at. That there's nothing, there's, like you're looking out, and sure, sure, it's not uh, the natural habitat that it was, but it's all natural stuff. Well, it's I all... meant that it's not as planned. Like, if yeah. you go to a park, yeah, a lot of times, you, you know... You see rows and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's planned out the way that things are going to look. And, that you know, there's buildings, like you said. But it just really felt like being out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's... Um, the, the roads are generally took the path of least resistance. So yeah. it's not like they built bridges or built tunnels or built up their stuff. They, they built... They, they do a lot of winding and backtracking and stuff like that. So it's... They they match the topo- the roads generally match the topography pretty closely because mm-hmm. they're trying to build the road as cheap as they possibly can, as quick as they possibly can but, to get to get them where they want to go. So they they follow they follow the edge of a hill instead of cutting straight through it. Well, and yeah, and some of the time we were out there, I just thought like I felt like I was the only person out there. I mean, mm-hmm. you and me were the only yeah. people out there. No, you were by yourself. <laughs> you hid behind me, and I was like, <laughs> I'm the only one here. I'm alone. <laughs> but it. It just felt really nice to be like out in a natural area that wasn't a paved road, and you know I could see forest and nature all around me. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of beautiful. Yeah, so so just despite the con- uh, the controversial like nature of logging and using the logging facilities as for recreation. Yeah, there, there's pros and cons. 
So I, I thought I thought it was fun. We're I mean, there's lots of there's lots of logging roads. We go out on if if you've ever driven a gravel road, you've probably driven a logging road. Well, but. and I mean, of course, there's there's negative impacts, but there's also, you know, logging is part of a li- our life right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just it's part of Oregon's history. It's part of the nation. And right now, toilet paper is such a hot commodity, and yeah. the timber mills have been just slammed They've because of that. Um, so it's an important part of our lives, and whether you like it or you don't like it, I mean, you just have to realize that every book you read is thanks to the timber industry and our and our toilet paper, our toilet paper, and the the hotel, the structure of this hotel was made by wood. Mm-hmm. So, and of yeah. course, there's ways to do it that are sustainable and beneficial, and ways that you can do it that are bad. Um, yeah. And we're not passing judgment. We're just bringing that to light. Yeah, and no, noticing that logging roads are good for birding. Yeah. So and I can't wait to go up that that trail more. Like I, I want to go take some of the other spurs. And yeah, see, and see I, I want to go, go rock hounding. And yeah, I had this big idea. I was like, we're gonna write the book for class up county hikes. And then I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah, we're we're pretty busy. Yeah, we we have stuff going on. Yeah. So if somebody else wants to write it, we'll uh, sign off on it. We'll, we'll, well, yeah, we'll we'll let you know. We'll go we'll go on some of the hikes for you. Seriously. Um. So that was that was our adventure. It was a lot of fun. Um. Do we have anything coming up? I don't know if we have anything coming up. Nope. No. So we're um we're still basically on hold. Um. Can't really make any long term plans about doing anything. Hopefully something will clear up by I mean, the end just, of summer. We're just waiting for the hotel to open at this point. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're closed at least until the end of April. Um, and laying low. And yeah, at least until the end of April, probably mid May, maybe end of May. Hopefully we'll be able to open. Um, but until then, we're we're just doing maintenance here at the hotel. We're uh, doing a little bit of birding when we can. Reading you know. our our turtle doves journey. Yeah, yeah our thirty page book. We're gonna read it over and over and over. <laughs> I feel like I could read it over and over. I could read it a couple more times. Yeah, but um, that's that's all I got. So um, thank you guys for listening to our podcast. Um, we hope you enjoyed it and or learned something. Please, 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 rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, um, Facebook, Facebook. Yeah, Podchaser. Every, every everywhere that you listen to us, you can write us a review there. You can write us a recommendation on on Facebook. Um, if you'd like to connect with us, uh, you can either connect to us through any of our socials. Um, Hannah goes birding. Eric goes birding. Hannah with an H. Eric with a K. Both of them on Instagram or at We Go Birding on Twitter, uh, our Facebook page Hannah and Eric Go Birding, or you can also email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at Gmail dot com, or you can check out our website Go Birding Podcast. Go birding podcast. Um, tell us what you like. Tell us what you hated. Um, share us with everyone, and please just uh, write us a review and <laughs> be well and do what oh, yeah, the, sure. your local government is telling you to do. Yeah.